Several weeks ago, I was here and had the opportunity to address the congregation regarding the topic that you see on the screen this morning, Marks of a Mature Christian. There's ten points in the lesson. We had an opportunity to present the first five some time ago, and someone said, well, what are you going to do the other five? Well, when you asked me to come back and do the other five. <laughs> so the brethren did ask me to come back, and we are going to do the other five. But we're going to do a brief reacquaintance of the lesson that we've already studied, but we're not going to spend a great deal of time on the first five, because if we did, it would be a two-hour lesson instead of one. And I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your willingness to listen. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to see all of you. And one of the blessings associated with this congregation is I know so many of the members here and have gotten acquainted with a lot more, and I'm very thankful for that relationship and that opportunity to know you. And I hope that uh, all that works well for the best interest of all of us. I know it does for me. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29. In fact, we're going to look at two sections of Scripture by which we're going to actually introduce this study this hour. He said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and fill up on my part that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which was given me to you, word, to fulfill the word of God, so even the mystery which hath been hid for ages and generations, but now hath been manifested to his saints, to whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory whom we proclaim admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ, whereunto I labor also striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Paul identifies his goal, his objective is by virtue of the preaching he did, the instruction that he gave, he's wanting to present every man, that is to say, every person perfect in Christ. The word perfect here does not carry the idea of sinless perfection. It carries the idea of being complete, completely if you will, equipped to do and to be what God wants us to be in his service. And so when you read that word perfect, think in terms of being complete. And I want you to look with me now at Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, where the writer says, For when by reason of the time you ought to be teachers, you have need again that someone teach you the rudiments of the first principles 
of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of solid food. For every one that partaketh of milk is without experience of the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food is for full-grown, some texts say perfect, some say mature, but in any rate, he said, but solid food is for full-grown men, even those. Now that brings up the question, who are these full-grown men? He answers the question in this part of the verse. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Now I want you to look closely at that passage of scripture. Because he said, here are those ones that are the full grown, the mature, or the perfect men. They are those who have their senses exercised. Well, there's two things that really come into play here. One is a knowledge of, an understanding, awareness of the content of God's word. The other side is the use of one's own mental faculties, one's capacity to reason through and to work through the information that has been made available for them. And so he said, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised, to what end? To discern, to discriminate, or to distinguish between some things. Well, what are those things? Good and evil, right and wrong, truth and error. So then, as we grow in the knowledge of the scriptures that we have been exposed to, and that is exactly what the writer is talking about, then we do grow, we mature, we develop, we become completely equipped to be what God wants us to be on this side of eternity. And thereby, we can be with the Lord on the other side in that eternal home of the soul when this life comes to an end. So now let us move quickly through some of the points that we've already discussed in this lesson A mature Christian is dependable, strives to do all the Lord's will. He receives correction profitably. Sometimes we don't receive correction profitably, but that's the point of maturity. Distinguishes from the truth from error and does not seek his own way. But now let's move on to the next point. The next point that I want you to notice with me in connection with marks of a mature Christian. Here's something that the mature Christian does not allow for. There's no room for it. The mature Christian is not easily offended. I think all of us have experienced some lifetime relationships with people, with others, who might be hyper sensitive, if you will. They wear their feelings on their sleeve or on their shoulder. And if anything is said or done that in the remotest way seems to be out of the way with them, they react adversely. 
I know that it has happened to me on some occasions, and I didn't even know that the circumstance existed about which I was later informed. I was told at one point in time when I wondered what in the world is going on here, folks are all of a sudden, they've been very, very friendly, very open, and very communicative with me. All of a sudden, they walk by at the door of the church building, in or out, don't say anything, and I wonder, what, what in the world is going on here? So I asked them, wherein lies the problem? What has happened here? The relationship between us doesn't seem to be the same. And they said, well, some time ago, we, we walked by you at the church building door, and you, you didn't so much as speak to us or shake our hand or acknowledge our presence or anything of the kind. I was totally unaware that any such thing ever happened. I think if anyone knows me and knows me well, they know that I seek out the people to speak to them, to talk to them, to shake their hand and make them welcome and make them feel comfortable. I will never, by design, ignore, overlook, or mistreat anyone. It just isn't in my makeup to do that. And after I explained to them, I didn't know that ever happened. I did not observe the incident. I apologize for having created that kind of an atmosphere, but I ask your genuine forgiveness for it if that has been what's lingering in your mind. Well, now here's the thing that I want you to see here. Some people are very sensitive, and they're subject to be easily hurt. I know that. Other people have a very thick skin, and you'd probably have to hit them with a sledgehammer for them to feel it. But in any case, I know the difference in these two circumstances. And I try my best not to ever do anything by my will or purpose to hurt or do damage to anyone. My desire is to help people, number one, to grow up. Number two, to go up to heaven when this life is over. It's all about spiritual relationships, one we have with the Lord, the one we have with one another while we're here on this earth. And I don't plan deliberately to do anything to violate either one of those relationships. Now, I'd like for you to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter and the 20th chapter, 20th verse. And I want you to notice something in this section of Scripture. Paul said, brethren, be not children in mind, yet in malice be ye babes, but in mind be men. Now, if there's a better example of the idea of someone being mature than that one, I don't know what it would be. But I want to use an illustration here uh, concerning this very verse. When he says, brethren, be not children in mind, yet be malice, in malice be ye babes. Now, why would he use that contrast between men and babes? Well, I think all of us at one time have had to take a child, perhaps out of the assembly of the saints, 
and do some disciplinary. I have to apply the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge in order to rectify an obvious erroneous circumstance or a misbehavior problem. Now, what I have noticed over the years about that is you take a small child, anywhere from, say, 15 months to 24 months to three or four, three years old or there, but in that range, um, there's something that I have never seen in my life, but I have seen this a lot, where someone had to take their youngster out and do some discipline action. That child typically is going to be snubbing and tears running down its little cheeks. And as you bring that child back into the auditorium or take it to a place where that you can be comfortably seated, I've noticed that the, the baby, while you are, while it has the tears on its little face, is still snubbing. You know what they're doing? They've got their little arms wrapped as tightly as they can get them around their mother or father's neck. I think you've all seen that. But I'll tell you what you've never seen. You have never seen that small child come back into the building with its little fist wrapped up like this, saying, one of these days when I get big, I'm going to fix your wagon. That you have never seen. That you will never see. So when you look at this verse, and Paul is saying, Brethren, be not children in mind, yet in malice be ye babes. What do you mean by that? There is no malice in the heart or the mind of a very small child. They don't think like that. They don't react like that. And so here he's trying to give us a good illustration of one of the key points in maturity, in growth, in development, and being the perfect man or woman that the Lord wants us to be. And so I'd like for you to think about that particular passage of Scripture as he goes on to say, Be ye babes, but in mind be men, be mature, be full grown. Then I'd like to move forward to another one of the points in this section. The mature Christian is not attracted by worldliness. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, and I want you to notice what, what the writer has to say about that kind of uh, conduct or demeanor. In 1 John 2 and verse 15, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the vain glory of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, you look at that passage and you say, wait a minute. He says, love not the world. Yet I read in John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, in these verses you're looking at the world being used in two completely different senses. 
In John 3.16, it's looking at the world as the millions of souls of lost humanity. In 1 John 2.15, when it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, it is talking about the world that stands in hostility toward God. And as we observe that world that is encouraged and stirred and stimulated by satanic devices, we see this world as we look around it today in every direction you can look. You see it often on television, read about it in the newspaper. We're made very vitally mindful of the fact that the world at large as we know it is loaded with corruption and animosity toward spirituality and godly living. And men are doing their dead level best and the devil is encouraging it every step of the way to try to cause people to turn their attention to him and his offerings rather than toward God and what he wants men and women to be. So when we read this passage, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loveth the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And unfortunately, we see a lot of that. We see lives taken. We see homes destroyed. We see economies disrupted. We see nations uh, having difficulties. Why? Because of the very thing this passage says not to do. Because men love the material, the physical, and they're after the power and the, if you will, position and the wealth that goes with materialism every step of the way. Well, the mature Christian is not attracted by worldliness. Now, I'd like for you to turn with me, if you will, for a moment to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading with verse 15. And hear what the Apostle Paul has to say about some of these very issues. Galatians 5 and verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? And he begins to enumerate what they are. He said fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, wrath, factions, divisions, parties, envyings, drunkenness, reveling, and such like. Of which I forewarn you that they who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, turn over with me to Colossians chapter 3. I want you to... Look at this, and then I want us to look at ourselves, look at our own lives, our own hearts, our own attitudes, and see how this fits us. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake cometh the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Now, I want to pause right there for a moment and back you up just a little bit into the first part of this chapter, verses 1 through 4. I want you to notice particularly verse 4, 
when Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested, then shall ye also with him be manifested in glory. He says, put to death. Get rid of something. Change your life. Change your behavior. Change your mental conduct and content. And so when he says that, let's come on down now to something else. Jump all the way down to verse 12. He says, not only in verse 5, you put to death or put off or get rid of something. Verse 12, he says, put on something. Change the content of your heart. Therefore, you change the activity of your behavior. You become a totally changed person. And he said, put on therefore as God's elect, holy and beloved, a heart. Now here's what I want you to see in this section of scripture. He said, I want you to put on a heart. Because from this point forward, every term he uses, you could put the heart statement in front of it. But he says, beloved, put on a heart. What kind of a heart? A heart of compassion. Then he says a heart of kindness. A heart of lowliness. A heart of meekness. A heart of long-suffering. A heart of forbearing or forbearance of one another. A heart of forgiveness of each other. If any man have a complaint against any, even as the Lord forgave you, so also do ye. And he goes on to say, and put on, you're right, put on love. Why? He said, because this is the bond of perfectness. After you have put on all these other garments, all these other steps, all these other activities associated with righteousness, godliness, and kindness, and love, he said, above all of these, the last garment that you put on, the thing that ties it all together, the thing that holds it together and keeps it in place is love. And he says, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. What's Paul been saying in all these epistles? What's he trying to do? He's trying to bring men to perfection. He's trying to make them mature. He's trying to make them full grown. He says, here's what will do that. If you put on all these things, he's enumerated. He said, and above all those things, you put on love. That is like putting on a garment and strapping the belt around it and holding it in place and keeping it there. And so we can see why. These things are so important for us to appreciate and to apply in our lives from the day we become a Christian to the last day we take our final breath. Now, holding that same passage in place, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. A mature Christian has his or her affections set. Do you realize that everybody has a mindset? Well, we do. 
A lot of people who have been educated in the sectarian and secular world, they have, they have a mindset. Oftentimes, unfortunately, they have been approached or been informed by people who are interested in one thing, and that's to remove from your mind belief in God or respect for God's Word. And if they can accomplish that, and in the world of academia, that is one of the fundamental procedures that they engage in. I don't care what discipline or area of study you're in, whether it be science, sociology, or psychology, they're working on you from day one. And if they can remove from your mind any concept of the spiritual, any reference to eternal God, or any sense of confidence in that book called the Bible, They've done their job in their mind quite well. But here in this section of Scripture, what we're looking at is the writer is saying, here's what I want you to do. If then you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Look at verse 2. Set your mind. Here we come back to this idea of a mindset. Do you what you know what the materialist, the evolutionist, the humanist, do you know what their mindset is? Well, it's very limited. Their mindset is there is no God out there. There is no eternal home of the soul. There is no life after death. It is all confined within a small box. When you die and are buried, that six-foot hole in the ground is all there is. But, beloved, I've got news for you. There is a God. There is an eternal home of the soul. Whether it be heaven or hell, there is a home eternal for the soul. And we need to understand that and have our mind set on things that are above and not on things, as he says, that are on this earth. And then he goes on to say, for you died, that is, spiritually speaking, for you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested, then shall you also with him be manifested in glory. So, number one, there is a God out there. There is an eternal home of the soul. And we're all going to go to one or the other. And the choice in that matter happens to be ours. But we do know that materialists, humanists, atheists, the ungodly are doing everything they can to change that scenario. Then again, I want you to look at something else. The mature Christian is not carried away by false doctrine. I want you to turn with me for a moment over to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. In this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders 
of the church at Ephesus. He's called him. He has contacted them and asked them to meet with him on the seacoast city of Miletus. I want you to hear what he says. This whole conversation is between Paul and these elders. How many are there? I have no idea. But he's talking to the elders of the Lord's church. He said, take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit hath made you bishops or overseers or elders to feed the church of the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. Now watch these next two statements carefully. He said, I know that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you. Now, here's intrusion from the outside coming in. And then he adds to that uh, something else. Not sparing the flock and from among your own selves. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the elders. From among your own selves shall men arise. Well, what are they going to do? He said they're going to speak perverse things. Well, why are they going to do that? To lead men after themselves. You see, there are those who are going to come in. They're going to try to intrude themselves into the flock. I'm going to tell you what you need to watch for. I've seen this happen many times over the last I hate to tell you this, over the last 60 years. I've seen people come into congregations, and early on, they're very kind and very graceful and gracious and thoughtful, building relationships. But the next time, next thing you hear about, they're asking folks to come over to their house on Tuesday night or Friday night or whatever, and they're building the number, getting more and more people coming over and visiting. And I want to tell you something. It isn't for an Amway commercial. It's for something else. They want to try to in, it penetrate your mind, your heart, and your life with some kind of a concept that they have picked up somewhere along the way. It may be something erroneous about the work of the Holy Spirit. It may be a, something, some things about such teachings as a new concept on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It may be something about the Lord's service and how we exercise our worship, what we do in our worship. We may have a better idea. We want you to think about our idea. Just want you to kind of melt. Just, just let it float through your heart, and we'll talk about it some more. And then they get folks that are interested in hearing more of what they've got to say. Next thing you know, as a result of that private meeting those people have been having in their home, you've got a rebellion on your hands. I know about a congregation that's up in the state of uh, oh, the, the state where all the horses are, the green grass. Anyway, what they did, 
they had a group meeting that was going on in that congregation of over 600 people. And they led about 200 people out of that congregation and started one that fit their concept of things better in their mind than what the Lord's Word said. The reason I want to mention that is because we need to know where the dangers and the pitfalls are and what men are actually doing. And I know that you, brethren, here are blessed with some very good elders, some good leadership, some men who love the Lord, they love the truth, and they love the souls of men and women that are members of the body over which they have the oversight. And I am sure that these are men, like Paul is saying to these elders, listen to what he says. I know that after my departure, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now, look at the next part of that. Wherefore, he says, watch ye. And then he adds to that. He said, remembering that by the space of three years I ceased not to admonish everyone night and day with tears. And he said, and now I, I commend you to two things. This is what I want you to really let register. He said, I commend you, number one, to God. The second thing he said, I want to commend you to, it's not a book about success or motivation. It's not a book written by Max Lucado or any other human author. He said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all them that are sanctified. So if we will stick with God and his word, we're on safe ground. When you decide to listen to somebody else who has launched out in some other direction than these, we're in trouble. Serious trouble. But I want us to keep in mind what the Lord is saying to us and for us about marks of a mature Christian. And there's one other thing that I want to say to you this morning about marks of a mature Christian. The mature Christian is not moved. Well, it's not here. So let's look at it. The mature Christian is not moved by persecution. Somebody says, well, we don't seem to have a lot of that around here. You had better thank your God that we don't. Because I'm going to tell you something. In some of the countries in the Middle East... There are people over there who advocate the fact that they are Christians. Now, I question the kind of Christianity that many of those people profess to follow. But here's what happens to them. There are people who are swift to take their lives and to abuse them unmercifully until they're willing to submit 
to Muhammad, to the Koran, and to some false concept. And there's another thing that we need to be very, very aware of. Those same people that I'm talking about that are doing that, they're interested in you too. And as we look at this particular statement, I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul has something to say to Timothy about all this. He said, Yea, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, does persecution always appear in the same manner? It does not. How does it appear? In many cases, it's very subtle. I have a very dear friend that I have worked together with him in the word of the Lord off and on for the last 40 years. I saw him suffer mightily because he was a man of principle, a man who stood on God's word. He had an outstanding position with a medical doctor in a particular practice. And the doctor wanted him to tell the patients something that was an outright lie. The man I'm talking about who is a Christian said to this doctor, he said, I don't lie for myself, and I'm sure not going to lie for you. Instantly, his job and his income disappeared. Now, did he shoot him? No. Did he throw him to the lines? No. But he was perfectly willing to throw him to the world without a job, without an income, or anything that he'd been accustomed to. Thank the Lord, he was a very resourceful man. And he was able to do quite well in taking care of himself. But I'm going to tell you something, brethren. You may be refused a promotion. You may be cheated out of an economic increase. You may be treated with cold shoulders and disinterest. Because you don't live like the world does. You don't act like the world does. You don't go where the world goes. And you, as a result of that, are going to be subjected to persecution from an ungodly world. And that is a sad matter of fact. Turn with me for a brief moment, and then the lesson is yours. In 1 Peter chapter 1, notice verses 6 and 7. In this particular passage of Scripture, Peter said, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been put to grief in manifold trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is proved by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may be abused by men, but you're going to be rewarded by the Lord. Therefore, the marks, the final one that we want to talk to you about, 
is the Christian is not moved by persecution. He'll take his stand and he'll stand up for the Lord. I don't know a lot about her belief system at all, but I do know this. A few years ago in Colorado, two young men broke into a school up there and killed several young people. One young lady standing in front of them. He asked her, do you believe in God? And she said, absolutely, I do. He shot her right through the head and killed her on the spot. I hope we never are confronted with that kind of situation. But I want to tell you something. If you were, where would you stand? Where would you stand? There's a possibility that there might be some person in this assembly this morning who desires to become just a Christian. Not some kind of a Christian, just a Christian. You want to be baptized into Christ. You want to be identified with the Lord. You want to be called one of God's children. We want to help you. If we can help you in obedience to the gospel, please come forward and let us know in just a moment. But if you also are a Christian and you say, I've made mistakes, I've let the Lord down, I've disappointed him, I've disappointed myself many a time. I need the prayers of my brethren. Pray for me that the Lord will forgive me, and I hope my brethren will forgive me. And help me to serve the Lord consistently and faithfully. And help me to turn and help others to lift them up. If you are in any way subject to the invitation of Jesus, would you come while we stand, while we sing?